Welcome to today's edition of the Paul List Comics and Culture Podcast. Every day I pick a comic and then I provide some analysis, discussion, and critical engagement. I'm Tu Ply on Twitter at T-W-O-P-L-A-I. My perspective is as a cultural critic, academic, and a teacher and preacher. So I try to be analytical since sometimes I get philosophical, sometimes I get a little spiritual. Well, since I do analysis of a comic's work each day for about 20 minutes, I do get into the details. So I always suggest that you read the work first, whether you buy it from your local retailer or digitally. Yes, that's a lightweight spoiler warning. All right, let's dig deep. This is Friday, July 15th, 2016. Um, Our Friday find is The Nameless City, um, written and drawn by Faith Aaron Hicks, published by First Second, with colors by Jordi Belair. Uh, This book came out a few months ago in 2016, and I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, I was excited about it before it came out, as I knew that Faith Aaron Hicks had been working on it for quite a long time. And um, when it finally came out, I was uh, thrilled uh, to to, re- to receive it, to read it, um, and then uh, thrilled because it was just so dang good. Um, in Friday's Find, I try to talk about a, um, a comic outside of the direct market, um, although, of course, these often show up in, in the direct market. And I call it a find because it's really supposed to be something alternative or um, sometimes small press, um, but sometimes this is also the day um, where I'm cramming in talking about some of the big graphic novels, um, books that might end up on something like the New York Times bestseller list. And sometimes these are the comics that actually, uh, at least in bookstores and, and online, um, outsell the, um, the comics that you might get at the comic shop. Um, it's almost a separate market. Uh, and I, I've been thinking a little bit about rejiggering the days and what I cover, um, devoting two separate days to single issues of superhero comics sometimes feels like a little bit of a cheat to me but anyway we'll see how it goes we'll stick with it for now so a few announcements um like i said uh you know day after day for the last few days your feedback is appreciated um i'm going to keep doing this throughout the summer and whether or not i continue after the summer's over is going to largely be contingent on whether or not it picks up some steam whether i get some uh listeners and some feedback from people like you that this is something that you like and you know i'm just doing this for the pure pleasure and fun of it so if it is something that people like and enjoy um i'm enjoying doing it so i'm happy to keep doing it if not i think it's probably harder for me to justify um continuing to do it i mean there's no economic financial justification for me doing this (laughs) Um, and i don't think that there will ever be really the purpose is for passion and pleasure and um and if it's something that's shared i'm glad to do it if it's something that's um, entirely uh, for for myself, then um, I guess I, I might think about um, switching to do something else. So if you are have been listening and are enjoying this, leave me some feedback. You can uh, tweet me at 2ply, T-W-O-P-L-A-I. Uh, you can email me at 2ply at gmail.com. And now, um, in the last episode, I was kind of griping about how hard it is for me to talk about art in a podcast medium. In, a, in this platform, in the episode that I did about um, Out on the Wire, about Jessica Abel's book about podcasting, I talked about the contrast of these two media, these two platforms, the way that they're similar and different, th- these two being comics and, and podcasting. But anyway, 
nakedly I have the problem of I just can't show you what I'm talking about when I'm like you know gushing over a work of art and I think that's going to be super relevant today so I actually uh, started a tumblr page for this podcast it's under two ply at uh, sorry that's not how the internet works <laughs> two ply.tumblr.com and you'll find it's called the Paul list and um, I, I'm going to try to post the art that I'm referring to there. Um, I'm not entirely sure about the legalities. I think that if it's for review purposes and, uh, and I respect, you know, uh, what things I'm, I'm posting there, it, it's allowed if it's not. Um, and if you are a creator or a publisher and I'm breaking some rules, please let me know. I'm happy to take it down. I honestly just want to give, um, the work, it, you know, uh, it, it's due recognition. And so I want to talk about it. I want to be able to sort of discuss it in depth with reference. And so if it does work, if it pans out, it would be great that um, I can point you listeners to the site, to the Tumblr site, and you can find the, the corresponding post and uh, look at some of the images that I'm talking about. But I'll also not make the podcast entirely dependent on it. Hopefully, even if you're listening in your car and you can't, um, or you shouldn't be looking at a website, it'll still be uh, interesting. It'll still, I'll still try to describe things with my mouth that you ought, really ought to be seeing with your um, eyeballs. Okay, um, The Nameless City is a gorgeous book. Uh, it um, is a first second book, and I almost wanted to call my Friday find the Friday first to second because I'm such a fan of what first second um, publishes. Um, I uh, wrote a tiny bit about first second uh, in my multiversity columns where I interviewed Gene Luen Yang because I talked about how his work was such a good fit with that publisher um, in a, the briefest of histories of uh, first second. And they've just, in my few contacts with the world of publishing and comics, been pretty uh, pretty much my favorite publisher to, to interact with and, and work with, to be honest. Work with. I, I don't really work with any publishers. Uh, but anyway, insofar as that is a, 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 a thing that I do, um, first second people have been just wonderful and their books have been amazing um and so i'm excited to talk about a first second book i in fact i'll really sort of prioritize talking about first second books and i would definitely prioritize talking about faith erin hicks um the the uh the the books that she's published in the past i've been a fan of um first got to know her because of the eisner attention that she got for the adventures of superhero girl i got a chance to meet her very briefly and uh, to hear her talk at the Alternative Press Expo, which is out here in the Bay Area, a number of years ago. And she was just the coolest person. I mean, just so um, generous with her, her, her thoughts and her time and her experiences and, and talked about her craft and her evolution with such um, transparency and, you know, sort of um, real just passion. And, uh, and it was just she was just a total pleasure to, to, um, to hear from. Uh, nice enough to to sign my book. I just asked her sort of outside to sign the book, and she drew a little sketch and um, signed it for my daughter. So that was just super nice. Um, but I I really liked the Adventures of Superhero Girl. I had it, knew she'd be there. I brought it, and uh, was really excited to hear from her. Um, however, however, a lot of my talk today about the Nameless City is to say this that um, Faith Aaron Hicks already was a, like I said, Eisner-nominated, super-accomplished cartoonist. 
Um, but with this book that's come out, I really think she's made a leap. Um, she, her, her, her work has made a leap. Uh, she's advancing as a storyteller. Uh, yes, this is, I mean, you know, The Nameless City to me, um, when I read it, even trying to be as unbiased as I could, you know, unbiased without the experience of having met, uh, what a, what a generous person Faith Aaron Hicks was. Um, I just loved it. And actually it's proven itself because I, it's passed hands among a ton of people and, uh, they've loved it too. Um, the, the epic scale of the story, and I'll, talk a little bit about what the story is in a second but this is really the first volume and clearly the first volume of a a, a, a a huge narrative and she is doing some world building and creating um it's set in a, a very asia-like city and there's a lot of uh made frequent re- reference especially this week in, in my podcast this week talking about tezuka and uh monstrous by marjorie Liu and uh, sana takeda but i've talked a lot about cultural hybridity uh, especially with um asian and western uh and so she she does quite a lot of that um in this book uh, in creating a world that could you know very well exist in china or maybe in southeast asia um or or somewhere in in that um part of the world in that part of the world <laughs> like it's like it's for, far away and foreign to me. I'm a Chinese guy. Okay, <laughs> um, but uh, but yet it feels authentic. It doesn't feel uh, you know exploitative. It doesn't feel false. Um, one of the the uh, blurbs on this book uh, cover is from uh, uh, Brian Konietzo. I think that's how you say Konietzo. Anyway, he's one of the Avatar Last Airbender guys. And so if you're into Avatar, I love Avatar. Um, you're gonna like Nameless City in terms of the kind of world and the kind of cultural. Um, reference that it makes. There's a lot of thatched roofs, which are not easy to draw, <laughs> but um, it seems that everyone has been lovingly rendered by Faith Aaron Hicks to try to um, replicate elements of the um, the sort of Asian world that she's she's capturing, as well as armory, which is also somewhat thatched um, and must have taken a long time to draw. Anyway, like I said, um, you know, it's it's a, it's an epic scale story. It's epic scale world building, but of course it's centered on um, a few characters that are just uh, really really well drawn. Um, you know, Hicks has always had a style that I think appeals to young and old. Uh, she, as I said, she's already awesome. She's already she was already good. She was already Eisner, but you could see the mm, no actually that's not that's not fair to say. You can feel the amount of growth that she is experience as a storyteller to take the leap to doing something which i think is always kind of um as Knitzo's quote on the cover says astonishing to be a single author and to craft the kind of epic that um usually a room full of writers need to be there to create um i mean this is next level jeff smith you know kazu kibuishi kind of stuff. And I'll even throw Raina Telgemeier, even though she doesn't do the same kind of, you know, um, multi-volume adventure, but the way that she paints characters and, the, and sort of how accomplished she is as a cartoonist. That's the level of the work that we're, we're really talking about here with this book. Um, like I said, I think she's made a leap, um, just as her characters in this book make a leap. Uh, anyway, I should probably talk about what the book is. Um, it is uh, a story of... Uh, a character named Kaidu, um, who's in a city, who sort of arrives at a city where actually his father has been for quite a long time and is a is a government official. But the city is is uh, has a name has a number of names, uh, which is why it's called the Nameless City. Um, 
it has a number of names because it's a central sort of um, you know centrally located uh, as it says in the back built on an ancient mountain mountain pass always invaded by one nation or another and so there is the layering on of um, of you know uh, centuries of conflict um, of maybe colonial rule uh, that mark the city and the people within the city um, and so you already have sort of a, a world uh, largely in a kind of turmoil a kind of um, you know uh, a constant occupation and uh, changes of power and uh, Kaidu uh, is from the the Dao, which is the sort of the ruling uh, nation in the nameless city, and then there's a a, a girl that uh, he meets named Rat, <laughs> who is um, sort of a living on the streets, street smart, tough, um, and then they develop a, a friendship, and uh, and he starts discovering things about the world. Um, it's uh, remarkably satisfying for something that's clearly the opening salvo of a longer. Um, longer book uh, again in the same way that you know um, the first uh, volume of bone is really satisfying and yet just leaves you hungering for more and the same with uh, uh, Kibushi's amulet um, I think that uh, really the only big flaw of this book is the fact that it's only the first volume and now I have to wait uh, years <laughs> for every other volume uh, book two is to be called the stone heart and uh and uh, Faith Aaron Hicks, you know, God bless you. May nothing keep you from continuing to uh, write and draw the stone heart and whatever volumes are to, fo are to come, are to follow. Uh, what I want to actually get into a little bit is where, you know, there are leaps that are clearly about the, the, the size of the plot, the enormity of the world, the, the ways the the characters are drawn and sort of the extent of characterization that she can do in this kind of a story co contrasted to some of her previous work. Um, but I actually want to talk a little bit about the visual storytelling. Um, the, the ways that I see she's already been great. Uh, Hicks has already been great. And um, the visual storytelling is taking uh, a leap, um, as I said. Uh, but before I get into that, I should also mention that I think the book has helped insofar as it can be helped anymore uh, on top of her um, uh, Hicks's enormous talent um, by Jordi Belair's coloring. And I, when I say Jordi Belair, of course, I mean the Jordi Belair collective of uh, 500 color artists who are all geniuses because there's no way in heck that one individual can color as much as she does with as much range and just just utterly perfect coloring as Jordi Belair. Uh, the jokes abound about how Jordi Belair seems to be coloring a million books and yet seems to do each one with exactly the right um, original originality, tone, pizzazz, uh, tenor, whatever uh, metaphor you want to find to try to saturation, hue, whatever, you know, uh, she's good. And uh, she's good in this book. Um, actually, I wondered how many flatters, and flatters, by the way, are people who do a kind of legwork of coloring, but um, I wonder how many flatters Jordi Belair, Belair employs. I would just love to see like a f fast motion capture of, you know, a week in the working life of Jordi Belair and uh, how she manages to go from, you know, Batman to this to, you know, a hundred of the things that she colors um, awesomely, you know, with, um, with flair.
Anyway, um, uh, I think Hicks uh, has always been a capable cartoonist, uh, has always had an attractive style. I, th I see these leaps, and it's really exciting. Um, and it, one of the things about these leaps is that I've, her comics has always been really readable, but there's readable, and then there's I can't put it down sort of pace and speed, which is not only necessary for a book like this, which has to establish so much in the world and also relies so much on action to the extent that it feels like it could be like, you know, um, from one of the big animation houses. Um, but, but also, uh, I think it, it, it just, it's gotta be readable even at, uh, for an audience at an age that may not be hyper trained in comics it has to sort of train you to read comics even as it's uh, um uh you know relying on an, an ability to read comics and so there's so much craft involved in that that um that's why i say that there's really a leap going on here you know and so when i compared to um smith and and kibuishi and telgemeier and i'm sure i'm leaving out somebody here um you know, it's not just sort of in in terms of sales figures, but it's in terms of how much those uh, those artists have been able to draw from um, the visual language of animation and yet translate into comics in um, such in, in ways that are, I mean, seriously, like you know, the youngest kids who are just beginning readers can understand what what is trying to be communicated in terms of action, in terms of characterization, in terms of gesture and acting and so forth. Um, and yet it, it has a sophistication that um, can absorb an adult reader. Um, last story before I actually get into the analysis, I um, brought the book for a kid, uh, a kid, kid of a family friend and we were eating burritos and um, he started it before the burritos and uh, he was done by the time the burritos was over and it's certainly not because the book is short um it's just that it's a it goes down as smooth as a uh a delicious burrito <laughs> all right so that's the last let me get into the actual um the, the actual analysis i kind of start by um going back to the master um eisner had a way will eisner had a way of understanding that what was needed to make the work fluid to make the and and fluid not just in the sense of being sing you know single paced but he knew how to um, control or guide or facilitate the reader to know when to slow uh, when to hold and when to fold um, to, you know he says in in um, graphic storytelling and visual narrative he says that um, there the uh, at the outset of the telling of a story. Whether oral, written, or graphic, there's an understanding between the teller and the listener or the reader. The teller expects that the audience will comprehend, while the audience expects the author will deliver something that's comprehensible. In this agreement, the burden is on the teller. This is a basic rule of communication. But in comics, the reader is expected to understand things like implied time, space, motion, sound, and emotions. And in order to do this, a reader must not only draw on visceral reactions, but make use of an accumulation of experience as well as reasoning. And all of this, Eisner calls the contract. It's the assumption that when a reader, be it um, you know, a 35-year-old um, lifelong comic reading nerd like myself, or a five-year-old like my daughter, who, um, yes, has already read a lot of comics, but you know, uh, needs, uh, you know, is, is assumed to, to need to be guided into this. Um, what do you build upon to be able to uh, 
tell the compelling story and to move the eyes and the mind in uh, in just the right way. Um, and one of the things that Eisner um, talks about, in fact, in the page right before this bit about the contract that I just discussed, is that uh, he says, uh, uh, you know, let's see, let me get to the right spot. He talks about how the basic thing that you build on with a reader is empathy, and that you know to the that the empathy that humans have for other humans or let's say you know persons is he's quote a major conduit in the delivery of a story you know empathy is a quote visceral visceral reaction of one human being to the plight of another the ability to feel quote unquote the pain fear or joy of someone else and allows for emotional contact um the wincing with vicarious pain when observing someone being hit is, according to some scientists, evidence of fraternal behavior, the work of a neuropsychological mechanism developed in humanoids from very early on. He kind of got that right. Uh, this is a field, a field where I have some expertise. Um, this not only suggests a cognitive capacity, but an innate ability to understand a story. There's a whole body of clinical studies to support the conclusion that humans learn from infancy to watch and learn to interpret gestures, postures, imagery, and other nonverbal social signals. And from these, they can deduce meanings and motives like love, pain, and anger, among others. Uh, the, the, relevance, the relevance of all this, this is all still Eisner, to graphic storytelling becomes even more apparent with the claims by scientists that the evolution of hominids' ability to read the intentions of others in their group involves their neural, uh, visual neural equipment. This is possible, they contend, because the visual system evolved to, be, to become more connected to the emotional centers of the brain. It helps, therefore, for an image maker to understand that all human muscles in one way or another are controlled by the brain. Based on the understanding of empathy's cause and effect, we can then come to the fashioning of a reader-teller contract. So that entire contract is very much based on our, our very uh, you know, early developed, uh, almost innate ability to read faces, gestures, posture, um, as, as a feeling that we can empathize with. Um, Hicks has always been able to make use of this, but I think that, again, we're talking about next-level work here. So there's a page, um, and it's going to be on the tuply.tumblr.com uh, place where I post uh, these images, but I'll, I'll kind of talk through it. There's a page where um, the main character, uh, Kaidu, encounters some, um, uh, I guess, people of another caste and likely of another race, another class, who are living on the streets and eating food that's sort of like got flies flying around it. And there's three kids who are sort of ragamuffin-y and then a, a mother. And on the page, you can see that uh, Kaidu is sort of discovering the city. And he looks up close, you know, kind of looks over and there's a, a you know, a, a somewhat uh, saddened uh, appearance on his face. And in, in some very subtle lines, you can see he he sort of stares at this um, group of street urchins and their mother um, picking food with out of maybe the trash with with flies on it. The the um, kids look back at him. Then uh, the mother sort of gathers them up and says, like, don't stare back. Uh, he's embarrassed, and that embarrassment is drawn with a very sort of manga-influenced um, set of lines under his eyes in a blush. Um, and then you can see his eyes dilate um, because the pupils are bigger than... Uh, is that dilating? I don't know. 
my brother's an optometrist. I don't know. Anyway, the eyes get bigger, <laughs> uh, but but it's really the eyeball um, and that very subtle difference. You know, one of the things that we're hyper attuned to recognize in each other's faces in ways that we actually don't even articulate often is that we can recognize the dilation of, of pupils and what that means emotionally. And we tend not to even be able to say oh, his pupils were dilated or whatever, or, or his pupils widened. But we just kind of know what that means um, innately. And uh, I don't know if dilated is the right word. Somebody help me here. Anyway, <laughs> you see the contrast in his eyes. The, the size of the eye, uh, as Hicks draws it, is actually that, not that much different. But, um, but very subtly, you have read that uh, Kaidu has become somewhat embarrassed um, and somewhat uh, sort of, you know, aware of himself you know at first he's, he's sort of gazing at these uh these um poor poor kids and then he suddenly has become aware of himself and his gaze and then he he marches on you see him kind of walk away um that page in the bet in the body language and as i said what's going on with the facial features um is just a remarkable instance of wordless storytelling that is encounters between humans like you know thoroughly social um thoroughly socially embedded thoroughly interactionally embedded and all done uh wordlessly and in a way that is uh you know kind of only comics can do <laughs> and it's great i mean you could do this kind of thing in film obviously silently but then you don't have the reader experience of controlling the pacing and the time and the ability to sit there and absorb to whatever a degree you're you're able to or want to, uh, what's going on with the faces and gestures and and um, stuff like that? Um, it's amazing. It's awesome. And I, you know, there's a contrasting page that I've um, put into uh, the Tumblr as well. Um, contrasting pages from uh, an earlier work um, by Hicks called "The War at Ellesmere," um, a book that was published by Slave Labor Graphics. Actually, maybe they ditched that name, SLG Publishing, uh, which is a pretty awesome outfit in itself. But um, the page is good. It's good art. But again, you'll see the contrast in that um, whether it has to do with the style that fits the story or whether it's just Hicks's style, she's always drawn with a certain kind of um, a certain kind of face. <laughs> in fact, uh, I hope this isn't offensive, but I've always I've noticed that a lot of times cartoonists who have dis some distinct features of their face other subtle you know i'm not saying uh caricature-ish but some distinctive features of their face it, it often turns up in their art itself uh which means that i draw a lot of ugly characters because i i'm pretty ugly <laughs> but anyway uh i've noticed that hicks um there are certain aspects of her face this is just getting weird okay anyway aspects of her her features that i notice in in a lot of her characters uh but you know her um the uh the page at war at Ellesmere shows that um, there's a lot of obviously work done by facial features in her in her previous work, but just not with the kind of control and subtlety that we have kind of that we see in in um, how much she's accomplished here. Um, I got to keep moving. My time is going long. Um, a next a, another example I think is is the way that she's really become next level. This work has become next level in terms of the flow and the action in creating this cinematic sense of motion this rhythm that can kind of absorb you into reading uh with this with clarity um there's like an incredible clarity of orientation there are again many 
many pages of this book that are wordless or have few words. Uh, Rat is a character who speaks much more with her um, body and her face than uh, often than than her words, or at least than with many words. And so um, you can see the use in action scenes of all of the tricks, you know, to make action not only look cool and exciting, but legible. And and that's the tricky thing is that, you know, you can make a lot of action look really cool, but but does it force you to s- slow down at exactly the time when, as a reader, you want to speed up or, you're, you're, you know, you want to guide them to speed up? And see, that's the double bind. Like sometimes you'll see artists who draw very cool looking action that slows it down and makes you want to stop and stare at it uh, or you have to stop and stare at it to figure out what's going on but once you do that you've obstructed the sort of like the rhythm of it uh, what Hicks does is you know it's the kind of action that's like fun to stare at that you do want to come back and look at but you just can't it's pro- it propels you I can't speak it propels you forward in a way that you um, you just have to follow um, the page that I'm looking at um, that i Posted on the um, Tumblr, the, the sort of second sample of of work from um, from this book is one where he's running. Uh, Kaido is running and he's chasing after Rat. And you'll see on this two page spread that um, there's just a really uh, a dynamic movement. Uh, you know, there's scaling up uh, a roof, there's sliding down a roof, there's leaping, there's um, you know. Uh, trying to catch and almost falling and sort of seeing somebody take off but um there's like really smart use of of speed lines and emanata just sort of not too much not too little emanata being these lines that emanate from faces to express emotion or whatever that you can kind of feel the ups and downs the sort of you know the gasps and the uh, the the breathlessness of the um of, of kaidu as he's running and then you can also see um that all of the momentum despite the sort of switches of angles and whether he's going up or going down it all sort of moves forward in a left to right fashion and i think that's not one of those hard rules that you have to follow but it is one of those things that makes it really helpful that the direction of the reading is the same as the momentum direction of the runner and that kind of movement that kind of motion just kind of contributes to this clarity and flow that i'm talking about um i contrast that with a page from nothing can possibly go wrong um also uh published by first second and uh written by prudence shen that i will also post uh, there's a scene of of a basketball game and again it's a really it's a competently drawn scene there's really nothing wrong with it you know you read it and you totally grasp what's happening um but if you consider every panel of movement has certain vector lines of flow or force Uh, one of the things about that page is that it's hard there's multiple vector lines going in multiple directions and so it's a little bit harder to follow the action and to figure out what what should i be focusing on here's this close-up that tells me this thing happened but that's going in that direction and then this other page or this other um you know moment the ball is going up in this direction of course have to do that because it was basketball but it's just sort of it's going multiple directions and you just can't sort of read it with the same fluency that you can um uh the page from nameless city um, again another example of where i can see hicks um mastering the craft um finally just the last two samples um the one from the nameless city is a page early on where kaidu is stepping backwards and sort of 
in awe of the city, uh, really of something in the city that that he sees, and he almost steps off a step or uh, almost steps off a cliff or a wall, and then his father grabs him and keeps him from falling. Um, and uh, what what Hicks does is she makes use of three panels arrayed um, horizontally to show Kaidu stepping back, stepping back, and as he's stepping back, his father's filling the the air with this description that you can see, you can understand from the word, the text, why he's kind of standing in awe. It's almost as if the language of describing the city is overpowering him, making him having to back off, back off. And then in the third panel, you can see his foot sort of falling back. And without showing his face, uh, Hicks manages to create this sense of the bewilderment or the awe of what um, what he's staring at um, through his body language, through the spacing of the balloon uh, in relation to um, to the character's body moving backwards, and then of course the the you know sort of instantly um, understandable thing where he's falling backwards and falling off the the ledge because he's just backing up and backing up and backing up to try to you know cat uh, to try to fathom with his eye this whole picture um and you know even <laughs> I, I love that um the the other character in the scene which is his father is you know is standing still and talking really has no business sort of his his legs sort of shift over <laughs> um uh they, they kind of drift over so that he's there to catch him but it doesn't matter like that that may be whatever wrong in terms of physics but it's right, exactly right in terms of visual storytelling in the sense of creating this um this feeling of this um this awe this movement backwards and then this like being so so in awe of it that yeah he has to reach out and, and grab him to save him uh and then he ends that page saying welcome to the nameless city son and you know with there's a lot of awesome panoramic pictures but without a single one of those being drawn just by the reactions and just by the flow of the page you get a sense of the awe of uh for the city uh that's just that's just good stuff um you know and and in, co- in contrast I, I i would look at a superhero girl page with actually a very similar situation uh a superhero and a monster standing on a cliff and probably because of the constraints of the format um the web-based format that hicks was already originally publishing you know it was it's actually a horizontally arrayed page but um horizontally arrayed page and she has to stack sort of three columns of panels and there's this cliff but and and so the three columns are readable but but you know there's no way or she didn't manage a way i think to take advantage of the cliff and the feeling of you know, being tipped over the edge of a cliff in the same way that she's able to in this Nameless City panel. Um, again, not nothing. none of this is meant to fault the previous work, but just to say that there is, at this point, a mastery of the craft that's just really fun to see. Um, so that's all a bunch of visual storytelling stuff, uh, visual narrative kind of things. Uh, really, I think I'm just trying to break down and analyze what is a um, thing that you should not have to analyze because without um, having to sit there and analyze it, it just, it's like eating chocolate. Uh, or as I said earlier, a burrito. It just, uh, you can break it apart and, and talk about the ingredients, but really the point is um, it's good in your mouth and it's good going down. And uh, I think that's what the nameless city is. So 
Certainly there's thematic things that are important, as I said at the beginning about the cultural hybridity and um, and it's just also good fun. Um, so obviously I recommend Nameless City. Um, check it out. And um, thank you for listening. Uh, tomorrow is the tomorrow is the Saturday Super Friend, and I'm going to talk about New Superman number one by Jean Luen Yang and Victor Bogdanovich, uh, I believe. And uh, I just want to thank you for listening uh this is now doubly long i say i say in the intro 20 minutes i don't think i've held to that promise in about uh, a month or so um anyway love your feedback as i said at the top um um you can find me at tuply twoplai.tumblr.com for the images uh, at tuply on twitter or um uh tuply at gmail.com okay thank you and uh keep reading